0: Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law.
1: And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law.
0: Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.
1: Hey, Fernita.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you, too. Y-
1: you're doing okay?
0: I'm hanging in there, you know. Um, a lot going on still. Uh, we are a couple months past the election, even though it doesn't really feel like it, right? We, <laughs> we still had quite a bit to talk about in terms of... Um, you know in terms of everything that happened this past election cycle, the events of January 6th, the um, the, the counting of the electoral votes when Congress was finally able to do its job. But uh, you know it, it's great to be able to turn to some new issues and sort of thinking about a, a path forward and we spent a couple episodes doing that trying to think about the status of our democracy. I'm really looking forward to this episode because uh, my sense is that you have some very specific ideas about how we can Fix some of this, um, and so I so I think it'll be a great episode for unpacking some of that.
1: Well, I hope so. I do have an idea that I'd um, I'd love to share and get your reaction to. Um, uh, I'm I'm working on it in terms of research and writing, but I'd love your reaction at this point. And uh, it does flow out of uh, lessons to be learned, I think, from January sixth and last year. But it is an effort to. Um, to look forward and to uh, solve problems. Um, and so maybe it makes sense to talk about the problem that I think is worth solving, the, the mm-hmm. issue that I think is urgent that needs attention and then see if we have a way to address it. Um, does that sound like a plan?
0: Sounds like a plan.
1: Um, well, as we've been talking about in previous episodes, um, you know, I'm particularly concerned by the rise of um, what might be called the more fringe elements or extreme elements, the problem of polarization, the fact that um, uh, the, the, the ends of the political spectrum are dominating the conversation. I think this is a particular problem on the right to be candid. I mean, the, you know, let's not uh, mince words, right? The Republican party is having this internal war between the MAGA, part of it that is still uh, enthralled to Trump and the non-MAGA part of it that's trying not to be Trumpy. Um, and uh, and so far, the MAGA side seems to have a lot of the energy. Um, but that's within the party. And that's fine. They have the right to free association and freedom of speech. I mean, I may not agree with MAGA ideas, but I, I believe in First Amendment freedom. Um, but I care about all the voters, one person, one vote. Uh, Mm -hmm. How do we run an electoral system that's good for everybody? And I'm afraid that our current system isn't fair to the totality of a a state's electorate because by accident almost, not by intention, it privileges the more extreme views within a political party. and uh, again, we've talked about how there's this verb now called to be primary, <laughs> which means if you're a politician, you're worried about your flank. Um, y- y- even this happens on the Democratic side. You know, mm-hmm. we hear about um, Chuck Schumer kind of looking over his shoulder, worried about is AOC gonna primary him? Um, you know, maybe not, but that threat, is, is there so I think as we think again if we' if we if we're fair to everybody we have to think about this issue as not just the, an issue on the right side of the spectrum there is a counter issue or, or version of it on the left side but um, but given January 6th and and given you know the kind of ugliness of American politics the refusal to accept the results of elections you know I'm worried about the way in which, the more extreme element of the Republican Party is dominating that part of the political spectrum.
0: Yeah, can I, so let me just really emphasize your point because uh, my sense is that we're starting to um, lose momentum a little bit. Uh, and this is what I worried about. We, we did an episode a, a while ago where I talked about um, the fact that we were able to select the president. And of course, this was before January 6th, this was before the big fallout that people will just move forward, right? They will think that everything is fine and we will lose sight of the fact that we have all of these issues. Our conversation about polarization and your identification of the problem reminds me of the fact that this is not really new, right? We, my, my sense is that election law scholars uh, started to sort of recognize that this was an issue a while back, um, not, and, and not from a historical perspective necessarily, but just in terms of like more recent events. And I'm reminded of when the number three Republican in the House uh, got, he lost his primary and everybody was shocked. It was kind of like during the rise of like the Freedom Caucus and, you know, and and to me, just in retrospect, when I think back to that, I was like, that really was a moment where um, the writing was starting to appear on the wall and we just weren't reading it yet. And But it really is one of the things that kind of led to January 6th, where you start to see Um, the end of, (laughs) I don't want to say the end, the decline of moderate Republicans. Um, There may still be some, but it's not really a popular position to hold um, given the fact that someone that high ranking in the party could be primary successfully. Um, And and it it really did, at least for me, uh, uh, foreshadow some of the events that we're currently living in with respect to our polarization and how the party has really shifted. And in fact, if you if you think about it, it happened really, really quickly, right? We're talking about one or two election cycles where the party went from um, sort of, you know, less moderate Republicans more to the right to like this lurch to extremism that really manifested on January 6th. So um, in terms of your identification of the problem, um, it's huge, right? And it happened really, really quickly. Um, and so I do think that we have to, you know, we have to keep the momentum going in terms of thinking through these issues and keeping them on the radar because it's really, really important um, for the health of our democracy.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for that reminding us of that mm-hmm. because you're absolutely right. Um, Freedom Caucus uh, for sure. I th- I think also of the Tea Party movement mm-hmm. or the Tea Party concept, and mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, I, the, you mentioned one example. Um, of a a primary uh, knocking out a a major person. Um, Another example, which has a different ending but illustrates the same sort of dynamic is um, Lisa Murkowski's uh, US Senate election in Alaska. I think this was 2010, which which was about when the Tea Party was kind of getting energetic. And so she lost her party primary, she's Republican obviously, Mm -hmm. and she got, um, beaten by this, you know, more extreme, I mean, extreme is a negative term to be sure. Right. And I don't mean to, I, I'm, I, it's just, um, I'm almost visualizing the spectrum <laughs> and the fact yeah. that, you know, there are people who are further on the right and some people are closer to the center. And I think it's fair to say Lisa Murkowski is, is a Republican closer to the center. And this guy named Joe Miller being in the Tea mm-hmm. Party was, you know, further out there on the right side of the spectrum. And so he wins the primary even though she's an incumbent in Washington, you know, but she loses kind of the same example Mm -hmm. or same concept, loses her primary, but then she wins this write-in campaign, which is so unusual,
0: right? Right. Remember everybody was trying to figure out, everybody was trying to figure out how to spell Murkowski.
1: (laughs) Exactly, right. And maybe that she used that to her advantage, Uh, you know, her advertise, she must've had some money and get on the airways and said, don't forget it's, you know, how to spell it. uh, and I guess Alaska law allowed her to, she couldn't be on the ballot, you know, her name couldn't be on the ballot, mm-hmm. but she could be written in that way. So what that shows me is that the the voters in the general election are not the same set of voters in the primary. Exactly. And, and if the primary, you know, veers to the right or veers to the left, it may knock out somebody who... Uh, voters in november want and and it was sort of an accident maybe of the writing campaign that she was able to survive that but a rational system a well-designed system wouldn't make it accidental it would say we need a structure that um gives everybody an equal opportunity and if the voters would prefer murkowski she shouldn't get knocked out in the primary
0: yes and, and, and I also want to point out uh, that it was Alaska, right? Alaska, Alaska permitted write-in candidates. Some states don't do that, right? So <laughs> it is entirely possible that you can have a situation where Lisa Murkowski, had she been running in a Senate race in a different state, gets knocked out in the primary and that's kind of it, right? Like, um, and so, you know, it, it, that's, that's another complication to this problem, the fact that state law also shapes the ability of a of vote of, of a candidate who might be preferred by a majority of the voters, it might shape the ability of that candidate, uh, their ability to get on the ballot. Uh, it just so happens that Alaska permitted that that avenue for her, and she was able to use it successfully.
1: Right, that right, and and your point about state law is um, leads to the notion of my proposal or my you know idea idea to uh, put out there, which is. You know, in our, we've talked in the past about how states do have the authority to write rules for elections, even for congressional elections, but the Congress has power under the Constitution to step in and say, wait a second, we're going to revise the rules a little bit or set some parameters. And Congress, as as you well know, and have written about, has been hesitant, maybe overly hesitant sometimes about exercising that uh, that power historically, um, because just as a matter of philosophy, states' rights, federalism, let the states run their shows, kind of thing. Um, I think there's a way. You know, it's often impossible to have your cake and eat it too, but I actually really think there is a way to do that in this context. That is, if Congress just established a very simple rule, which I'll explain in a second, it would then lead leave states the freedom to do a lot of different things that would comply with the federal rule. So states' rights, federalism, experimentation, laboratories of democracy at the state level, all that kind of stuff. And yet, Congress would protect the concept of majority choice, the fact that that an election should ultimately be decided by majority of voters. So how could that happen? I think Congress could just say it that simply, right? If you're running for the US Senate, uh, you must win a majority of votes to be a senator. Um, And I did a little bit of research thanks to our friend and uh, uh, Charles Stewart at MIT, who's a political scientist who's written a book about the history of Senate elections. And it turns out Congress had a law like this back in the 19th century before the 17th amendment allowed us as citizens to vote for senators. Our listeners may not remember that in the old days, state legislatures chose U.S. senators. That was the original constitution. It was all through the 19th century. It wasn't until the early 20th century in the progressive era that we changed and now you and I get to vote for senator. Well, in the era of um, state legislative elections for U.S. senators, there apparently developed this problem that sometimes there could be what are called plurality winners, meaning that somebody could be elected with less than a majority of votes. Now, back then it was a majority of votes in the legislature, but it was because of fracture, right? It was, there were three candidates, they split three ways. And, and so Congress stepped in in 1866, I believe, and said, if you're gonna be a US Senator, you must win a majority of votes. Very, you know, not a 700 page law, <laughs> you know, barely a one page law. Um, I think Congress could do the same thing now. And that would be kind of agenda forcing, right? I mean, again, states, most states don't do it that way. Like Alaska has a version that does. California has a version that does. Maine has a version. They do a little bit different things. We could talk about the difference, but most states allow for what is technically called plurality winners, you know, meaning that as long as you get the most votes, you don't need a majority. And that, well, it may not be you know, intuitive. The mathematics of that is what knocks out the possibility of a more uh, moderate candidate. If the parties are them polarized, right? If if the Democrats go way left and the Republicans go way right, um, the plurality winner rule can kind of suppress competition th- three ways. Because why bother to enter the race as a moderate if if somebody else is going to get the plurality. Now, again, Lisa Murkowski could be successful, but not everybody can be. And you can end up with the more extreme candidate winning the primary and then winning the general election, even though voters in November as a whole, had they had an array of choices, their most favorite choice would have been the more moderate candidate.
0: So Ned, I have to say, I really love that idea. and, and honestly, it's normatively desirable. I don't think anybody would quibble with the idea that, the, uh, that candidates should win a majority of the vote, <laughs> right? Like it's consistent with sort of the democratic ideals um, underlying our Republican form of government. Uh, it just, it, to me, it makes sense. Um, but I, do you know offhand, and of course the historian in me is like the 1866 law, right? Like, wow. Um, do you know offhand what um, motivated that Right, because it seems to me, you know, just from what I know about the period, Congress was being very aggressive about trying to remake the electorate. Um, But 1866 is really early, right? So 1866, they're still debating the 14th Amendment. 1866, they're still talking about the Civil Rights Act, Uh, not Civil, yeah, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. They're having all of these conversations um, and for them to pass this type of law early on before they have conclusively, you know, determined what their intervention will be. Um, this strikes me as really fascinating. Um, uh, and, and also the fact that we have this precedent, it, it makes you realize that this is something we can do. We've done it. Uh, so so really amazing. I, I think it's a, a terrific idea.
1: Well, well thank you and uh, appreciate that. Um, you know, maybe we should invite our, um, I think we had Charles Stewart back in a very early uh, episode of our podcast yes. to talk about other Things maybe we should invite him back. Um, Candidly, I still need to do some more research. Um, Mm -hmm. I could, you know, I I did go back and reread the chapter of his book where he talks about it, but I didn't pick up all the details of the, um, you know, the back and forth that led to the law Mm -hmm. at the time. I I was confirming, you know, that yes, Congress can do this. Yes, Congress has done this. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think we could speculate about the, you know what the dynamics might have been post Civil right. War during Reconstruction, where Congress might wanted to assure that, um, you know, the the winners were genuine majority winners and not just representing a faction of a party. But um, so I don't I don't want to I don't want to confidently say I know exactly the history of that. Yeah. And again, I, you know I think we should utilize this idea for our needs. As contemporary Americans living today, we are—I mean, you and I—love history and care about the relevance mm-hmm. of history. So I don't want to um, ignore that, but I want to—I think the—I I, want to note from the fact that we have this capacity, um, mm-hmm. and we could use it if it makes sense to meet the challenge of today.
0: Yeah, and you know, it—it it also goes back to my point about momentum. Right, so that law came about, as I mentioned at a time where there was just this vast change in sort of congressional power in our system of elections, rebuilding the Southern political uh, system, uh, just this vast change in our, in, our, uh, in our constitutional system too, as well, 14th, 15th uh, Amendments, 13th Amendment. Um, are we at a similar moment? Uh, there has been chatter, right, about the need for a third reconstruction uh, and so, if you think about some of the bills pending in Congress now, H.R. 1, which uh, would fundamentally remake our system of federal elections by requiring uh, automatic voter registration, independent commissions to draw congressional districts, uh, changes to our system of campaign finance, and so on. H.R. Uh, 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act bill, which will reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. like you have all of this legislation proposed that is more uh expansive than probably since the 1960s right so if you think about your proposal it does kind of fit with uh i think the the moment that we could be living in if we see it through right we could potentially be living in a moment where congress can step in and remake the electorates and if anything the fact that we just lived through a presidential election where Um, it was so controversial and so fraught, despite the fact that we had, you know, turnout north of 150 million people, Uh, despite the fact that there was unprecedented um, attention paid to this election, you know, it's it's pretty clear that there's a need for Congress to do something. And I think that this is an important piece of that. Um, And so, you know, one thing I want to invite you to do is, is think about your Uh, proposal in this broader context of you know, maybe this is part of the third reconstruction and this is why I was so fascinated with this 1866 law because it came about at a time where there was massive change to the way Congress interacted with the states in this area. Um, And it seems to me that your proposal is a piece of the modern version of that.
1: Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But that's really interesting. Um, I did think about the relationship of this idea to the big HR one bill that is pending in Congress, and and the John Lewis bill, um, and and what I was in the you know the need to revitalize the Voting Rights Act. And what I was thinking, and I'd be curious to your reaction to this is, um, you know, there's been a lot written recently about the filibuster and how the filibuster is an obstacle to a lot of the reforms in in HR one. Um, like automatic voter registration. Uh, and then, you, you know, unless you get 60 votes to break the filibuster, you have to get rid of the filibuster. And there just does not seem to be the appetite among all of the Democrats in the Senate to get rid of the filibuster. So people are, are uh, talking about HR1 as if it's not gonna get adopted just because of the, the filibuster. Um, and what I... W- and interestingly enough, you know, HR1 is this kind of huge bill of 700 some mm-hmm. pages and it's got a lot of stuff in it and you know, a lot of the stuff I, you know, that I really want, including ending gerrymandering and we could, the list is long. Um, yes.
0: <laughs> but
1: <laughs> but what, it, what occurred to me was um, this idea of which I'm calling a you know, majority choice or majority voting could be a stepping stone in this way. I mean, if we think about the dynamic process of of polarization and your point about looking at the last, just how quickly things have shifted rightward on the Republican side in the last few years, um, we have to imagine a situation, two different Congresses, one more favorable to HR1 and one less so. And it seems to me that the more the, the Republican, member again, the, again you know, as long as there's gonna be the filibuster, you're gonna to need to si- 60 votes. And if, and the more that the Republican, even if they're the minority party in the Senate, if there's you know 55 Republicans and they're all MAGA types, they're not gonna be so hospitable <laughs> to, right. to the things in HR one that we like. On the other hand, if we create a new architecture, that um, undoes the polarization that was artificial to begin with because it wasn't really reflecting the will of the average voter, um, such that you still get 45 Republicans in the the Senate, um, 55 Democrats or whatever, but the Republicans now are more Lisa Murkowskis (laughs) because they're elected in a majority rule way, then you might be able to break um, a filibuster in a couple of years for the HR1 provisions that you can't get through now. So I know that's a little complicated, but I think there is an interactive effect. So um, in some ways I think the cart might be before the horse. I mean, I understand why HR1 is called HR1 and it's the bill that people are focused on, but if it doesn't get adopted, I think there might be 60 votes for this little bill that I'm talking about, because it again, all the Democrats should be on board. And we ought to be able to find 10 Republicans who want to save their party from extremism, <laughs> who have lived through, you know, the trumpification of their party and they're not particularly happy with it, and might be on board for, for this one little fix that then allows states to experiment. We're not, you know, it's not one size fits all. And in a couple of years, we might have a new landscape that's more hospitable for for the third reconstruction.
0: Can I ask a question, Ned, related to this point? Because it it your comments sort of sparked this question in my head about the republic. Who is the Republican Party, right? So your proposal is trying to push back against extremism. But what if extremism is the Republican Party, right? What if we've reached a point where? Um, Lisa Murkowski and her sort of Republicans of that ilk don't really exist anymore, right? Like, and when we talk about party primaries, the the Republican party has advanced so far to extremism that now you have um, two candidates who are so far to the right that voters are essentially choosing between them in part because the Republican party, because think about it. One of the, (laughs) the Republican party has been a party that First, it was an opposition party for a long time. Even when they won Congress it, in 2010, it was more so about pushing back against the Obama agenda as opposed to actually governing. Um, and then when Trump won and they controlled both houses of Congress, the only thing they could really coalesce around was tax cuts um, and judges, right? So they haven't really been a, a governing party in any meaningful sense in a long time. And perhaps part of the problem, even with your fix, is that the Republican party is not really a party anymore. Um, And so at the end of the day, even if your proposal is adopted, the choices before the voters with respect to the voters who um, lean Republican are two extreme candidates, right? Because um, if you think about the Republicans in Congress who supported Trump, even if they feel like they had to do that in order to prevent themselves from being primary, are you still comfortable calling them moderates?
1: So yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and I don't know about you, but math is always a challenging challenge for me under the best of circumstances. And it's particularly so on a podcast where you don't have like a chalkboard,
0: <laughs> <laughs> So,
1: um, but I am going to, if you don't mind, I'll try to be a little bit wonky because I, I think the only way to answer your question is I've got an example in mind that comes from my home state of Ohio. That hopefully okay. can can illustrate this problem without having to get too technical. And um, and part of my thinking of this has has been watching, you know, Rob Portman retire. He's our senator from Ohio, who, right. you know, is pretty conservative and he's, you know, he's been supportive of Trump. Is that because I think it's fair to say he is not like Mr. MAGA. It's not like his natural inclination is to be. As Trumpy as they come, it's just that you know he lives in a world where there's the threat of the primary, and the the the, the base of the party, including in Ohio, is is a lot more uh, MAGA or Trumpy than he's comfortable with. Um, so I think it really illustrates your concern. Like, what if the what if the the old style can, Republican of which Rob Portman is a, is a relic, <laughs> and on the way yeah, out of retirement. If-
0: what if the Republican Party are? What if they're like just the New Age wigs, right? And
1: it's, and
0: it's and it's 1855,
1: right? Yeah. Like, well, here's why I think yes, you're absolutely right. But but I think today, and I'm no pollster, and I you know I'm, I'm a law, or, you know I'm not a political scientist, but but my strong conjecture, just living in Ohio and reading the newspaper and so forth, is. If in November of 2022, when we're having the Senate race that Portman's vacant seat is opening up, let's just imagine three candidates, a very Trumpy candidate who would get the Republican nomination for sure. And there are several right now trying to get that spot who've already announced, and they are wrapping themselves as much in Trump as possible. One's named Josh Mandel, and there are others we could talk about. Jane Kempkin, who was the former chair of the Republican Party, I mean, they are clearly aligning themselves with Trump. But there is a wing of the Ohio Republican Party that's not just Portman, that is not particularly aligned with Trump. Now, they're feeling pressure on their right, but Governor Mike DeWine has been attacked by Trump and been threatened by Trump at getting a primary because he was more moderate. Uh, during the COVID stuff and other reasons. So DeWine is not particularly Trumpy. Our current Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, um, who I think did an excellent job running the elections fairly as a Republican Secretary of State, um, and pushed back on Trump and his big lie and said, no, you're wrong, Mr. President, about voter fraud. He is clearly not in the Trump part of the wing of of the party. Um, And he has thought about running for this Senate seat. So imagine, let's just, you know, to fix it name, imagine, you know, Jane Timken as the Trump candidate in November, Frank LaRose as the non-Trump Republican in November, and then somebody like, you know, it could be Joyce Beatty, it could be Tim Ryan, you know, there's somebody who's on the Democratic side. You know, given Ohio politics being leaning red, leaning conservative, if if there was an elect a majority rule electoral system that asked who do the majority of Ohio voters want between those three choices, the answer might be the more moderate Republican Frank LaRose, even though he couldn't win his own party's primary um, And right because again, it depends on how you, how you think about majority voting, but, One concept of majority rule or majority voting is in a three-way race is to compare each candidate against each other. And there are forms of, you know, rank choice voting, you can use that kind of ballot that they have in Maine or Alaska, and you could ask yourselves, all right, voters in November, how do you compare your Trump candidate, Josh Mandel, to your moderate Republican, Frank LaRose? Well, every democrat who doesn't like either one of them because they prefer the democrat if given that ranked choice ballot will say well if we have to have a republican we'd rather have the moderate than the extreme one and every republican even if they would prefer the more extreme republican would say well you know as between these three options of course we prefer, prefer La Rose, to a Democrat, even if he's only Republican light or Rhino, he's at least better than an immigrant. Mm-hmm. So you know if that's the way that general election voters as a whole are thinking about it, your your, your Rob Portman types that look like they're going of the way of the Whigs and can't hold on because they're they've they've lost all their strength within their own party they still may represent the center of gravity of the general electorate, but the voting system isn't capturing that. And so, yes, they may have to be a new party, or, you know, again, I I, I agree with you. I don't know what the future of the Republican party is. It may need to split in two between the MAGA party and the non-MAGA party, and the MAGA party may be larger, but if the electorate system would allow the non-MAGA centrist party to prevail because it's more where the average voter is, why would that be a bad thing?
0: No, I don't I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I'm just saying be prepared for the possibility that um, even in the general election, voters might prefer a Josh Mandel to a, a Frank LaRose, right? Like yeah. because of what a Republican party is at this point, right? Like the, the party itself might just be extreme, right? As opposed to, and the majority of the party including the the voters participating in the uh, general election, might actually prefer Trump-like candidates, right? That's a, and that's, with that being said, um, I think your proposal is still a great one because I do think in the majority of situations, most voters will prefer the moderate candidate. But I do think there is some subset of situations in which, um, surprisingly, Uh, the Trumpian candidate might still win the election, even at the the general election stage, um, because that's just where the party is. Um, And like you said, Republicans, you know, they, even if they are not necessarily all in for Trump, he still enjoys overwhelming support in the party. And I, I don't, I don't think that that overwhelming support is just from people who are you know, who endorse every piece of Trump's, you know, agenda or, you know, support everything that he does, but they do support him. Um, and so they may also support candidates like him, um, even if they have the choice of, of, of voting for a moderate. And so I just think to some extent, that's just a reflection of possibly where the party is as a whole. But I have a related question about your proposal. Um, so runoff elections, right? So to what extent, would, you know if you if Congress adopts this majority vote rule um, would this incentivize states to adopt runoffs that could potentially be voter suppressive right so not instant runoffs but just in the sense of having a runoff election later in order to comply with this requirement that Congress has now imposed because one of the things that I uh, thought about pretty intensely during the Georgia runoff elections is the fact that runoff elections um, Especially in Georgia, were adopted for for the the purpose of depressing the vote, right? Um, so, I'm, so I'm wondering to what extent does your proposals invite that, particularly in states that have a terrible record on uh, on voting rights?
1: Yeah, no, that's an important question, and and I want to I do want to address that. Can I come back before answering that? Just to a point you made about the Trump being the majority, or the, mm-hmm. or a Trump candidate being the majority. Um, uh, but hold me to answering that question because it's important. So, so I, I just want to be a hundred percent clear that this idea would allow a Trump candidate to win if they win an outright majority in November, right? I mean, uh, again, I yes. might not like it, but but if you know, if you have a really conservative state and you've got three candidates on the ballot, you know, Trump you know, non-Trump moderate and then Democrat, and it turns out the Trump candidate, you know, wins 51% outright or 60% outright, you know, they get that mandate of majority choice. Um, you know, we yeah. may worry about the future of government for other reasons, but if we believe in voter sovereignty, they get to elect their choice. The, the situation that I'm more worried about, and I think it's a, it's a fair one, is if if your non-Trump Republican is really hollowed out, they could actually be in third place among the preferences in November if you just ask voters, what's your top choice? So to go back to my example in Ohio of the Josh Mandel Trump candidate, and then the Democrat, and then Frank LaRose as the non Trump moderate Republican. I do acknowledge that the voters in November in Ohio might choose, and here's where I get a little math, but they might say, oh, Josh Mandel 40%, Democrat 35%, and then Frank LaRose picks up the rear with only 25%, right? And so you might say, well, why should somebody who comes in third place win when they're that unpopular? Except again, and, and this is where these ideas are, and this is to be clear, Congress would not be imposing this answer. Congress would be saying, you states figure out how you wanna do majority rule, but right. it would be one option for a state like Ohio to say, well, in that situation, um, you know, given this fracturing of the electorate, we still want a way to allow the Frank LaRose candidate to prevail because even though they come in third place in terms of first place preferences, LaRose is everybody's second choice. And that really matters to getting to a majority, right? In other words, that's the difference between being a plurality winner and being a majority winner. If if the Trump candidate, Josh Mandel only can get to 40%, but nobody else wants him, maybe LaRose should be the winner, even though he's kind of the compromised choice. And the the concept of federalism and state experimentation would be, all right, we're Congress. We're not going to tell you how to do this. We just want winners who represent a majority determined somehow. But we don't want you to send the candidates to Congress who only get the support of 40%. um, Now, to your point about runoffs, which is crucial,
0: Can I respond really quickly to your? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of
1: course, yeah.
0: So, so yes, no, I I totally get that, and I think that um, the the situation you identified is—I'm hoping the majority of situations, right, where um, you know the majority vote uh, rule, whichever rule the states adopt in order to promote that, would lead to the election of more moderate candidates, right? I, but I, I do think that we may have to grapple with the fact that the the party is is so broken that even in that situation, the fact that you can have a Trumpian candidate get a majority um, is a reflection that we have deeper problems than just our voting rules. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's the, the only reason I wanted to point that out, right? Like, there's still, even even when the system that, that you wanna establish, we can still end up with a type of extremism which signals that we have deeper issues.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, um, I don't know if you know, Notice this, but this guy, Evan McMullen, who ran for president in 2016, is a never Trump, you know, Republican or whatever, he's claiming that that he's going to start a new, or he's thinking about maybe a new party or a, a wing of the like called the center right party or the integrity mm-hmm. party. And as far as I can tell, their their strategy is really just to derail the the Trump Republicans. By creating three-way splits in the current system that will allow the Democrat to win with the plurality, um, which again, from the you know, structural perspective, you know, I, I don't know is a, if that's a great idea, but it's like, you know, it's like a, using the system to kind of mess with it, right? Um, uh, so you know, we we could see in 2022 the sabotage effort by Centrists who who don't have any chance of winning, but they just want to prevent the Trumpsters from winning and 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 allow Democrats to win in a state like Ohio, where they actually wouldn't be the preferred choice. But the but the you know the 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 part of me, which is the scholar of me, that believes that the system should be fair for everybody, says it's not really good for a Democrat to win with forty percent of the vote if a 50% rule would have found the more moderate Republican instead of the Democrat, but that the only role that they can play is the spoiler role, given our current system. That just seems like not, not so good.
0: Well, it kind of sounds like the electoral college to me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, exactly. I mean, my, my research on this topic for Senate elections, and my thinking of it, it has totally grown out of my prior work on the Electoral College. Absolutely, right? I wouldn't have thought of this idea were it not for um, you know that other book project. But to go, unless you wanna talk more about that, I, I, I wanna make sure I get back to your question before we Runoffs. run out of time. Yeah, yes. so, um, so I share your deep concern that holding a runoff after the regular November election is voter suppressive because of turnout phenomenon, and that it has an ugly, you know, racist past associated with it that um, we need to not replicate and be very cognizant of. Um, I am heartened by the fact that the Georgia runoffs ended up the way they did, which means that even a machinery of government that was implemented for the wrong reasons, you know, didn't operate in a racially discriminatory or suppressive manner. But but you know, that's just one election. I don't want to, you know, to overstate the point. But it seems to me that one could address this perhaps by requiring that the majority choice be in November, one way or the other, and not be a runoff that takes place in January or December. Um, because California um, and uh, Washington State has a top two system uh-huh. that is mathematically similar to a runoff insofar it requires majority winners, but it doesn't do it with the voter suppressive component of a runoff. At least in my understanding, because by putting the by making the general election in November the place where the final round is you you don't have the the turnout problem at least not to the same degree because everybody's mindset is oh the main election is november you know we we can vote in the earlier primary if we want to but we know the main action is november you know that could i think be a version of the system that avoids the 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 runoff problem no
0: so so i have a question uh, last question because we're running out of time but Could Congress require states who, so Congress is is basically saying states is up to you how you decide to implement this requirement. But should you use a a runoff, it has to be an instant runoff. Could could Congress do that?
1: Yes. Well, by the way, yes, I think they could. I think the way that I would phrase it that might, again, allow for, that might signal that the California system is fine if a state Mm -hmm. wants to use it, even if it might not be my preferred, it it would say that Um, To win a U.S. Senate election, you know, the election must take place, you know, on November, Tuesday, November 10th, or whatever the date is in Tuesday, and you must have a majority winner on that date. And you can have that majority winner by instant runoff on that date, or you can have majority winner by a California system on that date, but you just can't have a plurality election on that date and have a runoff in December or January. I think that would would work.
0: Okay. So when you draft this bill for Congress, remember this conversation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yeah. Well, that's why I was, um, you know, really glad to to float, you know, to float the idea here. Um, you know, this this you know, I haven't just you know, I've discussed this, you know, one-on-one in private with some people, you know, including you before this podcast, but this is, you know, my first public discussion of the idea. So um, I'm happy to be able to do it in our forum because I love having the chance to interact with you on these sorts of things. So.
0: Yeah. Great conversation. Great ideas. Um, I can't wait to hear more about it. And um, when you write it up, you know, we'll, we'll flag it for our listeners and, and we'll go from there.
1: All right. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, you know, for this conversation and I look forward to our next one.
0: Same. Take care, Ned.
1: You too. Bye-bye. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening and thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.